And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Race is on, and now that the dust has settled on the 2022 Formula One season, we've picked our top 10 drivers based on their performances throughout the year. But who have we left out, and how do we justify some of our more controversial positions in the ranking? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to explain all are Mark Hughes, Scott Mitchell Malm, and Ben Anderson. Well, Mark, top 10s have been a fact of life uh, for many years for you, just as they have been for, I think, of all of us when it comes to ranking the the drivers. Always a slightly difficult challenge, isn't it? It is, yeah. Any sport that involves machinery, obviously, um, you, you, there are massive complications and it's um yeah it, it can only ever really be a, a sort of educated guess uh, ultimately but um hopefully with a little bit of insight in in there as well and scott before we get you to explain your top 10 we've just been having a meeting about our upcoming live podcast show on sunday february the 12th that's as part of pod live a week-long sports festival in london so remember that means the pressure's on for you given there might be some fans wanting to challenge the ranking you've contributed to if they don't really like it yeah absolutely i'm sure that um uh, anybody who would be attending that that live show will be at least accustomed enough to my nonsense that uh, they will at least have a broad idea of how my mind works. But yeah, the top 10 process is always a fun one. Um, I'm more than happy to justify myself to anybody that does uh, that does come to the live show. In fact, maybe that's more of an incentive than ever for, for people to snap up their tickets because I am, uh, I'm saying here and now you're, I'm more than happy for you to come up to me after the live show and berate me for, for any of my picks or justifications in uh, in in this top ten, and um, you, I'm, I'm sure you can also find uh, some some time to berate you as well, um, and also our um, special guest, if we're allowed to talk about our special guest, Ed. 
Yes, we certainly are. Our special guest is Ted Kravitz of Sky Sports F1 fame. He'll be joining us for a lengthy chat about all things Formula One. We'll be having a little bit of a look ahead to the 2023 season. Of course, by the time we get to February, we should be in car launch season as well. So there'll be lots for us to get into during that show. As I said, it's February the 12th. So click the link in the description and you can find out how to buy your tickets for our first live podcast and hopefully the first of many. And yes, you will have the chance to come up and say hello to us as well and maybe explain what you might disagree with that we say because there's nothing wrong with a bit of spirited debate. Let's come back to our top 10 itself. Ben, like the rest of us, you've over many years on and off compiled these rankings. How did you find it this year? I thought this was one of the more straightforward years, actually. I found that the the top nine or so was quite obvious. The bottom two in a full season ranking were pretty obvious to me. And then I had a a bit of a tie break on 10th, but it wasn't too difficult to settle that tie break. I felt they were kind of 10 fairly clearly outstanding drivers. And then the rest were kind of, they had some, let's say, more obvious setbacks or failings this year, I felt. Once you'd settled on obviously putting the three British drivers first, second and third, Ben, because obviously that's entirely how you base these rankings, was it quite difficult to do the seven after that? Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. (laughs) I'm biased biased for the Brits, against the Ritz, for everyone and against everyone. Biased against everyone's favourite driver is normally the way these things work out, but hopefully we'll be able to explain some of our reasoning. But before we get into the top 10 itself, let's take a quick look at those who did miss out. It's usually the case that there are perhaps two or three drivers who only miss the cut by a small margin, so each of my guests can tackle one of those. Mark, should we start with you? Who's the driver you want to talk about? Yeah, the one that just missed out for me was Pierre Gasly. Um, not as strong a season this year as last year. Um, a car that's not really cooperating with um, his natural style. I mean, it's not co- it's not competitive as competitive as last year's car anyway. But um, even within that, it, it it really didn't work with his style, not having a front end like that. Um, but he can still be super quick. And um, we saw his performance at Baku, where he was splitting the Mercedes for quite a while and easily the best of the rest. That's how good he he can be and there that his peaks are still as high as they they were um but it's i think as well as the difficulty meshing with that car he was sort of falling out of love with the team towards the end of the year and um he really needed to get himself out of that environment um now that he has um i'm hoping we'll see a return to the old gasly next year he was certainly very happy after testing the Alpine the other day in Abu Dhabi about the feel of the front end. So, yeah, I think Gasly, he was eighth last year in our list. But, yeah, he wasn't that close to making it for me in that, yes, he was on the periphery of the top ten, but I felt he was just a little bit too erratic and struggled too much to deal with the particular challenges of the car. Scott, who do you want to talk about? Um, I've probably got the honour of talking about the least popular pick outside of the top ten for us in that we've left out Sebastian Vettel. Um, I feel like Seb is someone that probably all of us, in a way, would have liked to have find to have found room for him in the top ten in his farewell F one season. And his his peaks were really good. Um, I don't feel at any point Seb looked like a driver that was phoning it in. Um, his professionalism remained up until the last. And yes, yeah, some of the some of the performances were 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 really really good. He 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 never seemed quite as vulnerable to. To the um, to the performance swings of, of the Aston as, as Stroll did. Stroll had some particularly weak moments, but Seb Seb was generally very very consistent. Um, did did a very good job of what what he had scored a, a good good chunk of points and 
looked strong until the end, but just just lacking, I think, a few of those um, a few of those wow moments that everyone in the midfield gets from from time to time. He he did really well in um, I think it was I think it was Baku early on where he actually um, did did land a relatively big result considering the performance of the car in the first half of the season. But a, a good year for a good year for Seb and. I think it's more about the quality of the people I did pick for the top 10 more than what Seb was w- w- was lacking. S- someone has to miss out and he was absolutely front of the queue for me for, for, for missing out. Yeah, I think he's one of those drivers who, if you judge him by his half dozen best weekends, he'd walk into the top 10, no problem, but still a little bit up and down. Even though it was the odd weekend when, like in Bakura, he did get that good result, but he still chucks it up the escape road at one stage. There's still that odd mistake in him, but at his best, Imola Suzuka, absolutely superb. Ben, who would you like to speak up for? Uh, so my my pick for uh, honorary loser is uh, Valtteri Bottas, who, uh, yeah, he was very close to making my top 10 and in, on the basis of the first half of the season, he was inside my ranking, I would say. Um, a bit like Gasly, I felt like he had, he obviously had more motivation than Gasly because he was new into his team and sort of re-energised rather than looking for the exit door. Had some some quite strong peaks. He was mixing it with the Mercedes early on in the season in a few races, some quite outstanding qualifying performance, um, through, particularly through the first half when obviously the Alpha had a slight advantage in terms of weight. But nevertheless, it felt like he was really making the most of the car. And then, of course, another outstanding qualifying in Mexico. So quite a few high peaks you could point to. But then, again, some of the same old limitations. The Mexican Grand Prix is quite a good case study because he qualified exceptionally well. But in the race, he was just a little bit lacking in incisiveness, a little bit lacking in terms of tyre management, the sort of things that have tended to trip him up when he was racing nearer the front of the grid. And a few sloppy mistakes like chucking it into the gravel in the US Grand Prix. I also felt like his rookie teammate, um, Shou Guan Yu, was getting closer to him and putting him under a lot more pressure in the second half of the year as well. So he misses out because I felt the second part of his season from summer break onwards was much less impressive than the first part of his season. Yeah, there was a lot good there and he certainly picked up the mantle of being the team leader there as he wanted to be. But yeah, just a few little weak points ultimately undermined his case. Scott, do you think this counts as a reason to visit Valtteri Bottas' sympathy corner? Yeah, do you know what? Literally, as uh, as Ben started to speak, I did want to interject and say this is a very early trip in a podcast of Valtteri Bottas' sympathy corner. So you're you're absolutely right, Ed. I think it does. I think it does warrant that. He's been he's been very good this year, but he's he's been very Valtteri Bottas this year. Stunning highs and some slightly less impressive lows. Well, let's get on with those who did make our top 10. We'll start off with 10th. Alex Alban, just the four points for him, a best of ninth in Miami, a couple of other 10th places. Mark Hughes, why did Alban make it into our top 10? I think he did a very good job of um, leading the Williams team. It's still the slowest car on the field. Um, and he put it into Q2 um, on regular occasions, just as George Russell had before him, uh, Q3 on one occasion. He was... Uh, in fact, his advantage over his qualifying advantage over Nicholas Latifi was slightly greater than George Russell's was last year. In fact, um, although Latifi did have particular problems with this, the, the FW44 more so than last year's car. Um, but the problem Alex faces really is now is one of perception, in that he was 
replaced at Red Bull by Sergio Perez, who's gone on to do the job that Albon was unable to there. But he was, you know, you've got to remember he was virtually a rookie when he was thrown into the spotlight and, you know, one of the fastest cars, Andy, with your team is Max Verstappen. By definition, you're underprepared for that. And I think it could take a time to sort of reestablish his actual level. He's now, I think, a more complete driver than he was at Red Bull. Uh, He's got a great turn of speed in him. He's not afraid of the the big, bold move. And he's delivering more consistency now. He's not having the silly accidents and practice and qualifying he used to have. Um, I think he'd had a terrific season and it's just uh, really one to build on. And I think in, you know, if three or four years time, you might be sort of ready to have that opportunity again um, if, if everything goes well for him. He certainly seemed to grow in confidence as a driver, certainly compared to his Red Bull stint, didn't he, Scott? He was a much more imposing presence. Yeah, and it was that make or break element to his season that, that I felt he handled so well. Um, it can't have been easy for him. He came into the year knowing that uh, if all went well, he would probably be leaving the Red Bull stable because it would mean that he has a chance to stay in F1 full-time. And I remember speaking to him in in uh, Brazil, I think it was, and he he told me that coming into the season, the, the number one goal was to, to secure his F1 future. And that for someone who would have been racing in his third year in Formula One. That's kind of an odd mentality to go in to a season with, but but that's the career circumstances that he was faced with. And to 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 know that at the beginning of the year and then drive the Williams in preseason testing and know that you're you're gonna be fighting for really, really occasional points cannot be an easy thing to to cope with mentally. But he did a great job and I, I think he excelled in that environment. He became more of a a team leader. He did a very, very good job in that regard. He still needs to get a bit nastier off track. I think he needs to be a bit more forceful. Um, but in terms of the job he did on track, Williams had very, very few high points this year. And Albon was pretty much always there to to do that. And he was also very good at executing a couple of unlikely, you know, Hail Mary strategies with uh, long stints and, and that kind of thing. The The, the main downside was that he got very ill on the Monza weekend and wasn't there when the Williams would have been at his most competitive. So that, that was a bit unfair on him, but all, all in all, super impressed by him. think he did a really good job. Uh, so that's why, I mean, he was in my top 10 as well. He takes that position that we all, I think we all like to award one position normally near the bottom of the top 10 for a driver in a back of the grid or lower midfield team that has done a particularly stunning job. And I think Albon is the guy who overachieved most this year. He was certainly the driver most likely to put in a very impressive performance and end up 12th or 13th. So not many people noticed him. But Ben, how well do you think he replaced someone like George Russell? George Russell was six in our top 10 last year. So a little bit lower, but, but still there for Albon. Do you think that he showed himself to be at the kind of level that Russell was and that he's translated to Mercedes? Or do you think that's asking a little bit too much and that it was always going to be a question of largely filling the shoes rather than entirely doing so? Yeah, I think you summed it up quite well there. It's a case of largely filling rather than entirely. Obviously, it's a slightly more difficult comparison in the sense that Albon hasn't been at Williams as long as Russell had been by the time he was achieving the most impressive results particularly in qualifying, that the absolute peaks were similar, I felt. You know, Spa qualifying, for example, um, a compromised track. It wasn't just 
like the whole circuit suited the Williams, but he absolutely made the most of a car that really didn't belong in the top 10 there. Did really, really well in Austin as well. A um, lot of competing demands on that track, and he almost made Q3 in, you know, as Mark said, the slowest car on the grid. So performances like that, you think, okay, they, Williams have basically got another Russell, but I don't think he's quite as consistently brilliant as Russell. He might get there, but I think it will take a little bit more time. Um, but I think he deserves a lot of credit for, for what he did with that car. The teammate, the teammate comparison, I think, is almost not worth making because I think probably everyone would give Latifi their wooden spoon if it was a, a full season ranking of all the drivers. Um, so you could say, well, that flatters Albon on the one hand, but also he hasn't really got anyone in that team pushing him on either. So the performance he is finding from that car, he's having to drag from within himself. Um, let's see if uh, next season when the lineup changes, whether he gets a, a harder time of things, um, but another rookie teammate. So um, he's likely to be kind of the established go-to man at that team for as long as he wants to be at the moment. For our ninth place driver, we're going up the other end of the championship. Sergio Perez, ninth in our list, third in the championship, of course. Ben, why so low for Sergio Perez? There will be people asking that question, so justify it. Yeah, well, I guess... Really, this comes down to the fact that uh, he's driving the best car on the grid, all told, when you take into account race pace, certainly, as well. And he didn't finish second in the championship. He only won two races. His teammate won 15, was it, by the end, or 16? I lost count. He won, he was 15, so, yeah, <laughs> won so many races. Um, and I think if you were judging Perez on the first seven and a half races of the year so kind of up to Baku race he's you know performing amongst the best um not that far off max but still off him but very close and then he just goes missing from kind of Canada to Monza and then Singapore a kind of hard reset another street track he did very well to to pick up the pieces there and win that race and then I felt like his level from Singapore to the end of the season was kind of respectable you know, similar to what Albon was doing compared to Max. Not really much better, not really much worse. And I've, I know Max is, you know, an unbelievable, incredible driver, you know, generational talent. But I feel for the fact that Perez wasn't consistent through the season, you have to mark him down. And I, I feel he should have finished second in the championship in that car. Um, and should have done better at certain tracks where the car was really strong, like Spa, for example. Max was on a completely different level to everyone, but also on a weekend when Red Bull was on a completely different level to everyone, and Perez just couldn't access that that level of performance. I'm going to be playing a little bit of devil's advocate on this podcast, so I'll do that here. I should say that, obviously, I contributed to this top 10 as well, so I'm more challenging it from that perspective than anything else. But, Scott, obviously, there will be those who say, well, when the car was to Perez's liking early in the season, he was hassling Max Verstappen and then it went away from him they back Verstappen so how do you kind of dismiss that idea the notion that it was a little bit harsh on him because it was made more difficult for him owing to the team being built around Max uh, there is absolutely an element of that um, and that's why I think you do caveat any criticism of Perez I think it's always tempting to go for the statistics and the statistics the statistics are quite damning but ultimately he isn't quite as good as Max Verstappen and he's in Max Verstappen's team. So if the car's capable of scoring poles and winning races, Verstappen will get the vast majority of those because he will always just be a little bit better at least than Perez. 
So the poles and wins are always going to be in Verstappen's favour. That that so so there is just that little bit of a limit there with how do you judge Perez's season. But that's where I think the fact he didn't come second in the championship fits in and the times at which he wasn't able to to beat Ferraris or Mercedes or, or whatever it was in, in a given moment. Because just because he wasn't beating Verstappen, he should have been behind him more often than not. And I think Perez scored, had a one in two podium rate this season, which is good in isolation, not so good when you factor in just how much of an advantage Red Bull and Ferrari had for most of the year and then in the second half of the year how much of an advantage Red Bull had over Ferrari um so he just he just underperformed slightly not not by a huge amount but underperformed slightly in what was on balance the, the best car so for a third of the season I think he was a top three top four candidate driver and the third of the season, he probably wasn't even one of the top 10 performers in the championship. And the other third of the season, he was absolutely respectable and definitely worthy of a place in the top 10, which is why actually on balance, that lower part of the top 10 ranking, I think, makes sense to, to, to me. And Mark, obviously, Perez is very much in the number two driver role. So the fact Red Bull won the Constructors' Championship is a big tick in the box for him. How difficult is it to evaluate the performance of drivers in this situation? They're kind of the Coulthard, Barrichello, Patrese type role in in a top team and that they're there for a slightly different role than the team leader, aren't they? They are, but they're there in that role for a reason. They're there in that role because they aren't absolutely of the front rank. And, you know, you, they... they Sometimes a, a driver will get um, erroneously mis- misclassified as that and then be able to prove that perception wrong when he gets the opportunity in a top car. But Checo hasn't really done that. Checo has just, over the last two seasons, has confirmed um, that he's very much uh, suited to the role that Red Bull chose him for, and uh, which is to be the, the backup driver and somebody will pick up the pieces when Max has a, a difficult weekend, like in Singapore, for example. And he's, he's he can do that, but the the, the reason why he's not of a fr- not a front rank driver, it, it, it's that's just baked in. I mean, he's three and a half tenths off Max on average uh, over the season in qualifying, and you could say, yeah, but that's Max Verstappen, yes, but there's there's probably five or six drivers on, also on the grid that could get a hell of a lot closer than three and a half tenths to him. So that that is just where he is, and it's not a really it, it feels harsh. Criticizing someone for that because that's the level, and it's a level that completely justifies them being in Formula One, and completely it can be justified that they're in a top team, given that they are the backup driver, they're not the the main contender, and so that's how Red Bull have chosen to run the team. They they want a number one and a support driver, a very very capable support driver, and he's he's as I say he's he's fulfilled that role role terrifically, but there are you know the, the when when he's got a car which is easier to to drive, so when it doesn't have the great initial response that a, a really quick driver can exploit, then yeah, there's he's he's much closer on pace to Max. But as soon as you make the car more demanding, then he falls away again, and that's just that's just a picture you expect to see. And it, it's there's no great surprise there really, and it's um, I think there's no no disgrace in his performance, but it doesn't warrant being among the top few places in a, in a ranking. Yeah, I think it counts against him too that there are other drivers who we probably will get to speak about later who also had challenges in terms of adapting to the car, working on their style to fit with how the car developed 
and they were able to either achieve a more consistent level of performance throughout the season or get stronger as the season progressed to the point where they were much happier and looked much stronger at the end than they did at the start. Whereas for Perez, it was much more up and down, you know, a strong start, like we mentioned, and then a massive void in the middle and then a kind of respectable-ish performance near the end. And you need to be operating at a higher level more consistently to justify being further up in the rankings, I think. And the fact remains that this car dynamic that you were talking about, Mark, and that has limited Perez, as you as you say, Ben, is the one that allows drivers to exploit the most pace from the car. Ultimately, Verstappen is able to extract the pace from the quicker car that, that Perez ultimately can't. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. Let's move on to eighth in our list now. He was also eighth in the Drivers' Championship, Esteban Ocon Scott. So what did you make of Ocon over the course of 2022? Uh, I thought he took another another step as a uh, as a driver. He continues to become to to get more consistent. Um, the 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 peaks are there. Um, he's very dependable, and when you give him a car as good as the Alpine this year, more often than not, he he will finish in the points. That said, uh, he did lack uh, the absolute mega pace that Alonso showed at, at times. He, he did struggle to. To really replicate the the the, the mega peaks that that Alonso showed, um, but you're talking about a really small missing amount of performance there. I don't think at any point Ocon was embarrassed. Um, I think it kind of just underlined that he is not necessarily to be considered one of the absolute stars of his generation. So you know. Could you say that he is to Alpine what Verstappen is to Red Bull, Leclerc is to Ferrari, George Russell is to Mercedes? I don't think he's quite in that bracket, but he continues to to show why Alpine has a lot of faith in him and why I think his value to Alpine is probably higher than it's ever been. I think he looks it it looks less ridiculous now that Alpine signed him on that long term contract. Uh, he he does look like someone who was a real asset to the team this year and will continue to be an asset to the team longer term. To play devil's advocate again, Mark, throwing to you on Ocon. Esteban Ocon scored 92 points. Fernando Alonso scored 81. I don't think it'll come as any surprise to someone that Alonso will appear later in this list in a higher ranking. So how do we justify that? After all, it's all about results and points, isn't it? Yeah, and it's also all about random luck and reliability as well. So that's just how it goes. Um, you, you get seasons like that. There's, um, in, in terms of an average um, performance of the season, Ocon was definitely a half a step behind a, a lot. So, um, but 
the fact that he could he could mm, compete with Alonso on 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 many occasions, and he's capable of some terrific performance. He was fantastic at Spa, um, coming through from a long way back, and you know he, he twice passed two cars in one go, and re- really really feisty performer, um, very fierce competitive spirit, a bit like that of Alonso's, but not just just not quite as gifted. You'll you'll see just how Alonso's straight onto the pace and it can take Ocon most of the weekend to get there, but he's usually got somewhere close by the time that comes to do the lap that matters in qualifying. Um yeah, not absolute first rank, but very, very um he's he's a bit bit more than a number two, I'd say. He can do the job of a number one on occasion, but probably no more than four or five times a year. But, you know, he's a, he's a I call him a number one and a half, really. And, uh, yeah, a good driver. And he's had a pretty good season and his stock has risen because it's been against Alonso. Ben, you were nodding in agreement there when Mark suggested a number one and a half for Esteban Ocon. So I presume you think he is in that awkward space where he's very, very, very good, but not quite performing at the level of, say, a world champion level driver. Yeah, he's doing the sort of job for Alpine that Scott outlined Perez should be doing for Red Bull. You know, when Alonso isn't there, Ocon shines. And he is there delivering the performance. As Mark mentioned, Suzuka, he was really strong. Austria, he was really strong. These weekends where, for different reasons, Alonso was compromised. But what prevents him from being at the level of Alonso and the other megastars is just this half a step that Mark mentioned of performance. And those occasional weekends where he just goes missing. You know, the car changes it to some degree and the pace just isn't there. I'm thinking of Austin particularly. You know, Alonso's going great guns and Ocon's just nowhere. And... They can't often, sometimes they find an explanation later, but sometimes there just isn't really an explanation. It's just a kind of weird mystery. And then over the course of the next few race weekends, Ocon gets his act together and he's back where he should be. I think it's just for those those few weekends where he can't sustain that ultimate level of performance that he falls below the tier of the absolutely top drivers. I think he has a he has a couple of weekends a year where where he's just nowhere or really, really weak. He has a few more weekends a year where he's absolutely brilliant and he's really, really on it. And he spends the rest of the year, which is the majority, just at a really good level. You know, not not absolutely stunning, but definitely doing a bit more than just what would be the bare minimum in, in, in that car. And that's sort of where he's at. And that ratio has shifted. Every year, I think it gets a little bit better with that sort of spread of good performances and a few more highlights here and there. So it's trending absolutely in the right direction. He just that, that describing him as a one, you know, one and a half driver is is absolutely spot on. Yeah, he's certainly a driver who, judged by his peaks, again a bit like I was saying with Vettel earlier, would be well up on this list. Races like yeah, Spa, as Mark mentioned, Japan was another one where he held off Lewis Hamilton for so long. So yeah, definitely a driver who's capable of. A tremendously high level, but not quite that last little bit that sometimes his teammate was able to stray into. Let's move on to Carlos Sainz next, Mark. A really difficult season for him. Started off certainly very badly. So how do you evaluate his performance over the year? Yeah, I mean, because if you think back to last year, he'd got himself very close to the performance level of Charles Leclerc and then they get into this new car and he's suddenly two and a half tenths of drifts and he's just shell-shocked. He has no understanding of how this could have happened. And it just, it, it didn't compute, but he, did, he, he the way he reacted, 
is the way absolutely where you would have expected him to. He'll, he'll, he's very calm, rational, and very competitive, deep-seated competitive person. And he just worked out what it was, just went through the day to try to adapt himself, took a few, you know, took a big chunk of the season. Unfortunately, the, the chunk that it took was when the car was at its best, at its most competitive. And by the time he, he sort of worked out the very specific technique required for this car and its unusual power characteristics and its handling balance. Um, the car was no longer as competitive. But, uh, yeah, he was he was back to a very high level by the end of the year, but as an average of the season, no, he wasn't one of the top, absolute top guys. Um, where, where he was very good was um, he was Ferrari's best strategist. He's calling of a... Getting straight on the slicks from Wets in Monaco. He disagreed with the team there. He got his way. He was right. Uh, the restart strategy at Silverstone, same. He, the, the team were planning on doing the wrong thing. He said, no, your best way of winning the race is this. And then his tyre strategy for Q3 in Brazil, when they wanted to put him on Inters, uh, as they did with Leclerc, of course. And he said, no, get me on softs and get me down at the end of the pit lane as, as soon as possible. And every time he disagreed with the team, it was when they'd made a fundamental error and every time he was correct. So I think you know, the, 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 there is an element of, of science as a logic and uh, his clear thinking that... Uh, should really be uh, being done on the pit wall. That uh, that that he's he's very much bringing to the to the party at the moment, and it it it, it really they shouldn't be relying on him for those sort of calls. But he's very very good at them. He's always been a very intelligent driver, Carlos Sainz. But you'd have to say, Ben. There's almost two ways of looking at the season, aren't there? You could say, well, he took far too long to adapt to the car. That showed a big weakness. Or you could say, well, isn't it brilliant that he looked in real trouble early on and managed to turn things around? And I have to say, particularly Australia, one and a half laps of madness almost in the race where he made a a series of of misjudgments, almost trying to make up from the bad luck of qualifying and then eventually chucked it into the gravel, which that sort of experience would have uh, broken lesser drivers. So so how do you see that the, the way those two things interrelate? Do they just reflect the fact that this is a driver who's got certain limitations but is very very good at working his way through them to get himself to a really high level yeah I mean I think if you look at the way this season panned out compared to the way last season panned out in terms of how he compared to the clerk it's quite similar in that he starts off struggling to find some pace and by the end there's not much in it if you if you average out the qualifying gaps from kind of Austria to the end of the season but ignore the ones where they've got engine penalties and one guy's giving a toe to the other. And it should also be said that actually on those weekends where Sainz was afflicted with engine component penalties, he tended to look the faster of the Ferrari drivers and we never got to see him deliver that ultimate pace in Q3. But nevertheless, there's about a thousandth of a second in the average. So actually the second half of the season, the performance is there. Absolutely. It's just that it doesn't become so apparent because as Mark outlined, the Ferrari is just way less competitive and Red Bull and particularly Max are cleaning up. So science, I think if he'd had a full season at the level of the second half, he'd be very, very high in this ranking. But because those early races were difficult and because he was making mistakes and overdriving a bit, throwing it in the gravel, like you mentioned, you have to mark him down. But um, I think the potential is there for him to take the step on now that the car is staying consistent from one year to the next, the car concept. He shouldn't have to go through this process yet again of figuring 
out the global picture of the car and how to drive it properly. And we should see a more consistent level of carless science through the whole campaign. And if he can do that, then I think we'll see him going further up the rankings rather than plateauing or dropping down. Scott, do you think we're back into the zone that we were 12 months ago? We're saying, well, actually, after the foundation of this season, can science challenge Leclerc for the de facto number one status in the team? Or do you think that just those little areas where he struggled have shown there'll always be that tiny little bit of difference? I think there is um, I think there is a very, very small margin between them because Leclerc is, I would probably say, pound for pound, the fastest driver in Formula One in qualifying. Um, some of the laps he's capable of is special. And Sainz has those moments as well, just on um, just on a slightly smaller scale. So I think he will probably always... I think he will probably always have a tiny deficit to to Leclerc on balance, which means I don't think he would ever start the season with Ferrari going, he will definitely be on Leclerc's level for the entire year. But he's close enough that it's absolutely not a sure thing that that Ferrari could start the year saying, oh, Leclerc's our number one, because Sainz is so good and so relentless and such a hard worker and so talented as well. Like he He isn't just someone who spends three or four months getting quick and then gets to an acceptable level. He's properly, properly good. The one doubt I do have, and this isn't really... He, he can't do, he can't have done anything to have dispelled this, so this isn't on him at all. But the one doubt I do have is if, if Ferrari has to adapt the car to make it as quick as the Red Bull, because ultimately the, the second half of the year it wasn't, does that change what Sainz has to do to get the most out of it? Can he live with that car as it changes to be a Red Bull beater. That's the thing that we don't know because the Ferrari wasn't that good in the second half of the year. But I want to give him the benefit of the doubt because I don't believe that they made the car slower and that suddenly helped signs or anything nonsense like that. I think he did a really, really good job of getting on top of the 2022 car. So now we just need to see whether he can do that in the 2023 car and that car be good enough to beat the Red Bulls because that was what signs missed in the second half of 22, but it wasn't really his fault. Let's head back to the world of Alpine now and talk about Fernando Alonso, our sixth-placed driver. Ben, I must admit, I found it very congested in this kind of P4, P5, P6 area of the top 10. So did you find that difficult to to place them? And what were the pros and cons of Alonso? Yeah, I had Alonso slightly higher up in my own personal ranking. Um, But, I mean, you can make a case. Once we're into this rarefied top six air you can make cases for all of the guys because they're outstanding um you know Alonso qualifies because you know he beat his teammate despite the fact he was behind in the points you know he was the stronger driver Alpine he was the lead driver he was better than Ocon more consistent uh, and the peaks were quite incredible you know he was let down by the car a lot of times but you know qualifying in Melbourne he was outstanding that front row grid slot in Canada in the wet was one of the best qualifying performances of the year. Uh, you know, he was every bit as good as we we've come to expect. It's difficult to find new ways to talk about how good Fernando Alonso is, and he defies his age, defies what you expect of a driver at that point in their career. He just has like an undimmed hunger and luster for going Formula One racing. And Alpine, I think, will regret losing him to Aston Martin because. Um, I mean, he he was claiming through the year that he was performing as well as in 2012 when he narrowly lost the world championship to Sebastian Vettel and perhaps Mark would be better qualified to talk about whether that's actually the case. But I found that point quite difficult to argue with because to me, Alonso looked, okay, he's not in a top car at the moment, but he looked as good as ever. 
once he'd shaken off the rust of last year, you know, coming back to Formula One after a break and figuring things out, I thought he was every bit as good as in his early career. Come on, Mark, how would you weigh those two up? A decade earlier, Alonso or today, similar level, one better, one worse? Very similar level, yeah, too too close to really be able to, to you know, pinpoint really. It, it sounds trite to say that his qualifying has never been his greatest strength because he's faster than all but a very select few over one lap, but it's his... It's in the races. It's his, it's like he's super smart. He's he's probably the best positioner of a car on the first lap I've ever seen. Um, that's all still there. Um, he, he's savagely competitive. And I just think sometimes it went a little bit over the top with um, we we saw in his dice in the, the sprint race at Brazil. Um, Okay, he got he got bundled out over the curb at turn four. That wasn't really down on down to him, but the way um, he positioned himself, retaliating, um, it was just a little bit over the top, and then he plucked his front wing off and ruined that particular race from. And there was an element of that in his dice with Stroll. Stroll was absolutely the the villain of the piece in Austin, but um, you know Fernando, he was trying to do a sort of dummy on, on on positioning himself and he he just misjudged that slightly just as he did with Ocon in in Brazil so i think sometimes it's just just goes a little bit over the top but you know you you nitpicking he's he's an absolutely extraordinary driver and to still be performing at this level at 42 just shows you know the how how his motivation is just uh, keeping him at that at that level it's just uh, incredible really and Scott, I'll do some devil's advocacy in your direction on this one. There will be those who say Alonso fell out with a team, that he can't be coincidence. He seemed to have more unreliability than others. Is he just somebody who's very good at talking up his own performance with his however many hundreds of points he likes to claim he lost? Uh, there's there's obviously um, there, there's obviously an element of him um, causing his own problems, and we saw that definitely manifest itself at towards the end of the year uh, I wasn't particularly impressed with how he handled himself in in Brazil on the the Saturday but um you you always knew that there was still the possibility for him to come back with a vengeance on the Sunday and do an absolutely mega job on track which is which is exactly what happened and there were a couple of times this year where just the the sheer quality of the recovery drive he did was was excellent and you know once or twice that was influenced by fortunate timings on safety cars or VSCs or whatever but you look at the job he did in Spain for example a, a race where normally if you if you start at the back end of the midfield there and you're in a midfield car you're going to struggle to make progress and he started dead last and and came through into the points he recovered into the points in Austria I think it was after the the sprint race setback um despite making an extra pit stop than than he was meant to make um and he had a couple more like that as well, Zandvoort and Brazil, where, again, sometimes you, you can argue that nicely timed cautions helped, but his racecraft and his speed was never in question at, at any point, really, this year. Once or twice on the on the racecraft side of things, like the sprint race clash with, with Ocon. But in general, to just sort of kind of echo a point Ben made, I think I just think his performances in the second half of the season especially just made a mockery of Alpine's logic for not giving him the contract that he initially wanted. I mean, 
there is no evidence that he is degrading as a driver as he gets older. And I think it was Alpine just trying to find excuses to not give him what he wanted because on the evidence of this season, before the summer and after it, why the hell would you not want Alonso in your car next year? Yeah, I think there's little doubt Alonso in a race-winning car is going to win you races and he can still fight for the championship. He was relentlessly good through the year. And the few times when there were slightly disappointing weekends, it tended to be down to trying to be a little bit too clever. For example, that penalty he got in Miami for cutting the track when he was messing about trying to cut people's DRSs and that kind of thing just worked against him a bit or slightly belligerently weaving in front of Bottas at the end of the Canadian Grand Prix while he was struggling home with that engine problem. But generally, yeah, performing at a very high level. Let's move on next to our fifth place driver, Scott George Russell. Got his breakthrough win, his breakthrough pole position, fared pretty well against Lewis Hamilton. So why P5 for him? Because um, on on balance, and I'm going to stray into talking about Hamilton a little bit here, but I'll try and avoid that too much. On, on balance, he was just slightly behind Hamilton this year, and really, really only slightly. Early on, the, his consistency was absolutely superb, and he did seem to be coping really well with the car when it was at its weakest um, Mercedes were, Mercedes think that actually his um, apprenticeship at Williams with a car that was never um, let's say perfectly balanced probably helped him there George is very good at sort of driving around issues like that and and, and handling a car that's not at its best um, there was um, there was a slight dip in his peak in the second half of the year and to, to, to his credit he was very very self-critical and, and and public about that felt that he'd not quite nailed it had some scrappy races made some mistakes not been that quick but a testament to his ability and his um work ethic that he was able to recover from that which facilitated a stronger weekend in Mexico that I think was actually a bit of a precursor to the win in in Brazil and like fair play to him because that Brazil win absolutely was on was on merit um the final stint holding off Hamilton was absolutely brilliant. So I think George can probably feel hard done by that he's not ahead of Hamilton in this list, but I think circumstances contributed to him beating Hamilton in in the championship. And it's a little bit like it's a little bit like the Alpines in that overall, marginally the faster driver finished behind in the championship, but that shouldn't detract that shouldn't be seen as a criticism or a negative for George because to do the job he did this year was absolutely fantastic. And he, he more than proved that he was worthy of that Mercedes call-up. Mark, looking at Russell's performances, how much of an upgrade do you think he was on Valtteri Bottas as Hamilton's teammate? Obviously, Bottas was 10th in our list last year, so we obviously think Russell's doing a better job. Can you perhaps quantify that comparison in some way? Yeah, I think he was a significant up, up, upgrade. He was a he was there as a, an equal number one, not a not a support driver, and he, he lived up to that. Um, he's much more consistently fast than Valtteri is, and more assured in his um, competitiveness with against Lewis. And um, he's super confident, very fast. And as Scott said, there was a little bit of a dip mid-season um, as, as Lewis stopped trying to decode the car and just got on with doing what George had been doing in the first part of the season which is just maximise the weekend keep it simple and just do the best that he could with the car uh, limited though it was um, and at, at that point you suddenly saw like a pummeling sequence of, of qualifying performances from Lewis and George didn't quite have an answer to but he bounced back from that and he, he was back to his his best by the end of the season and when you're doing that against 
somebody the level of Lewis Hamilton, you're you're at a very very high level indeed. And that's you know the that in that situation you would have seen Valtteri's head go down. You would have seen him just disappear for half a season. Um, but with George, you you always knew he was going to bounce back. He is a a, a proper world class potential world champion driver. He's, that's how he's looked. That's how we talked about him last year um, at Williams. And um, yeah, he's just confirmed that when uh, when he's been placed in a car that uh, a big upgrade on the Williams, albeit not as big an upgrade as he was hoping. And Ben, for you, Russell, do you think he ticked all the boxes he should have done in this first year with Mercedes? Yeah, he you know, he was the best best performing second best driver in a team of the season. That's why he's this high in the rankings. The sort of cadence of his year is quite similar to Perez, strong start, slightly iffy middle, and then a better end, but the overall level just much, much higher and more impressive. Um as as has been said, you know he's he's got one of the ultimate benchmark teammates as well. But he was far far closer throughout the year to Lewis than say Perez was to Max, or, or Sainz could get to the clerk certainly in the first half. So you, you sometimes see with um, these guys stepping up from you know lower midfield cars with less grip into top teams that they they do relatively well compared to a teammate who's got used to a good thing and then struggles a bit to adapt to something that's nowhere near what they were expecting. It happened with Ricardo when he moved up to Red Bull and the 2014 Red Bull was was lacking the level that Sebastian Vettel was used to and they they start quite strongly and it takes the, the incumbent driver a bit of time to, to get their head around it and get back to their natural level. And of course, once, as Mark said, Lewis stopped trying to debug everything and just got on with it, you could see a small gap there. But Russell, he doesn't look flummoxed by that. It doesn't look like one of those cases where Lewis has just got him under control and there'll always be that tenth or two-tenth gap everywhere you go unless something happens. Russell looks like the kind of guy who will have answers to those questions and will keep pushing Lewis hard. And, I mean, Toto Wolff has already said that they're kind of preparing themselves for the problems that come down the road with that kind of dynamic. So I think we're, we're now well past the Mercedes 1 and 2 driver era that we saw with Hamilton and Bottas and this is going to be now the strongest pairing on the grid for me going forwards. Yeah what a battle that could be next season especially if the Mercedes is a championship contending car. We'll get back to the pod in a moment but first a word about our partner Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do how you communicate is key. All those emails reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done and Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said done. Let's move into the top four now. Mark, Lewis Hamilton is ranked fourth for us. That's two places down compared to last year. You talked a little bit about him in comparison to Russell, but 
an unusual season, you'd have to say, for Hamilton. How do you think he dealt with this pretty difficult car? With some trouble initially. Um, he was, once he realised the scale of the problem that they faced with this car, he went fairly extreme in trying to um, get as much data from it as possible, doing as many different setups and wacky ways of, of trying to make the car work or the tyres work, just to try and sort of give a, a bigger data spread and a bigger data point to try and get it to be a competitive car. And once they'd got to a point where the car, they could, they understood it, uh, but they also understood what its limitations were and they knew the very narrow window of setup that they had to keep it in. Then that, that was Lewis sort of saying, okay, all right, then let's let's just maximise each weekend as best we can rather than look at it more globally over the season. That's when he, he, he that's when that gap appeared to Russell. Um, and it's, yeah, he, the, his peak stuff's just as high, but um, you've got to, you've got to average it over a season. This is over a season in that first part of the season. Uh, there were, there were, races where George was just more effective. Um, but in terms of the raw uh, underlying pace, no, he's absolutely where he's always been. Little bit rusty, little bit rusty in some uh, wheel-to-wheel situations, I felt, and it's something that he himself has acknowledged. He, he said it needs to improve um, and certainly was a bit of a clangery dropped in spa. But, um, yeah, so I, I don't think um, beyond criticism but the all all the, the the best stuff is still there and i think in a a title challenging car he's more than ready to go wheel to wheel with max again and i think that little incident that they had together in brazil was really it was a bit like silverstone in that they were both saying no i'm not gonna back down because it's you and then the other one was saying the same thing and I think really at the back of Lewis's head, he's thinking, if I'm in a title contending car again, I'm absolutely ready to go wheel to wheel with Max again. And it, I think he is. And um, it's, uh, it's 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 quite a, an exciting prospect to come if um, Mercedes can get that. Uh, the W14, I'm assuming, is going to be called if, it's, uh, if they can get that into Red Bull territory. That's going to be fantastic. There were those who were critical of Hamilton, particularly early in the season, suggesting he couldn't do it in a car that wasn't the class of the field that he might be getting a little bit old he turns 38 in January next year Ben did you see any sign of that or do you agree with Mark that he showed he still got everything he needs I think over the balance of the season you you can't say that age is is degrading him um as Mark mentioned wheel to wheel there's maybe a little bit of ring rustiness or um slight clumsiness but Spa was really the only proper example, I'd say, where he he messed up. And ultimately, I think he did admit that later um, when he went wheel to wheel with Alonso. Early in the season, I did, although Lewis was doing these experiments and obviously taking one for the team as the experienced driver, Mercedes trying to work out just what had gone wrong with their car. I did also detect a driver who was perhaps slightly struggling to come to terms with the fact that they felt they should have won the previous year's championship, wanted to sort that out, put it right straight away this year. The car's nowhere near competitive enough. And he did go missing in a couple of those early races. I'm thinking Saudi Arabia, Imola. He just didn't look to be driving to the level you'd expect of Lewis Hamilton. But for the broad part of the season, he was quite unlucky in those early races as well with some 
of the timing of the safety cars and what have you that cost him some points. So the gap to Russell ultimately is slightly deceptive. I think on the balance of the season, as Mark said, you know, the peaks are still there. Hamilton's driving, still capable of driving as well as he ever has done. Um, That's the reason he's not higher up in the ranking, just because there are these few blips. It wasn't a perfect season from Lewis, but even one of his worst seasons, he's still in the top four drivers on the entire grid. Scott, how did you think Hamilton reacted to being in this situation the first time in a long time? He's not had a car capable of winning the world championship. There was something suggested he was obviously not dealing with it well, not handling it well. He obviously complained on a number of occasions, particularly in the first part of the season. But overall, how did he respond? I think very well. Um, the first few races, there was, uh, I, I agree with Ben, there was definitely an air of someone who was struggling to come to terms with it. I think a lot of that as well is because I, I remember someone at Mercedes sort of suggesting this early in the year, but however bad the W13 was, it was still the best car that George has ever had in an F1 season. So there was an element, there's just a, and it is important on mindset. For, for George, this is still the best opportunity he's ever had. But for Lewis, this is like this is so much. This is so far below the standards that I am used to and that I expect. And I think it took until six or seven races in, probably after the Baku weekend, for him to really accept that it wasn't going to happen this year. And I think a combination of that mental shift and also after Baku being the time that Mercedes properly understood where it had gone wrong with its car and realised that there was basically a fatal flaw with it, that then changed how the rest of the season went because Mercedes identified the real areas to focus on with its in-season development but also where to fix things for the 2023 car. Lewis, I think, came to terms with that. Lewis stopped wasting time and uh going down cul-de-sacs on on race weekends and therefore was able to concentrate on getting the most out of the car that led to what mark was talking about about the, that run of race weekends where he was just the fastest driver there, there were still um there was still the occasional low points and um, beyond spa i thought he was poor in singapore um i thought that was a that was a bad weekend by lewis's standards or certainly a bad race by by his standards just a bit clumsy in in battle and unforced error that caused him to go into the wall slightly um, and then just that a really silly thing where he went offline half-heartedly looking at trying to pass Sebastian Vettel I think it was which allowed Max Verstappen to to get through and yeah that little bit of rustiness I think showed there but as otherwise I think actually all of the sort of quote-unquote weak weekends of Hamilton's season they all kind of have an asterisk against them like there are mitigating circumstances in a lot of them where you can give him the benefit of benefit of the doubt you know Saudi, he did do poor in qualifying, but the race was actually, he was doing a good job in the race and it just didn't quite work out with the strategy he was on and the time in the safety car. Imola, DRS training, it was bad offline. So without the, the just driving past someone on the, on the straight, you weren't going to make much progress. And lots of little things like this that you could always make an excuse for him, basically. Um, in general, I thought it was a very good season, just not absolutely one of his best. Let's move on now to P3, Ben Charles Leclerc. Second in the championship, third in our list. Explain. <laughs> yes, well, um, you know, we're into the creme de la creme now, aren't we? So uh, a pretty outstanding season in terms of performance. Um, started the year with the, the fastest car, certainly on a Saturday. Looked like it was going to be a Titanic title fight with Max Verstappen. Didn't quite work out that way. I think Leclerc's... Saturday driving was 
exceptional. He had the most poles of anybody. But we all know that, as Scott said earlier in the podcast, he's he might be pound for pound the fastest driver in F1 on a qualifying lap. He's certainly up there. But he didn't quite put the season all together. He made some crucial errors. Obviously, France stands out when he was in the lead and he chucked it off. Um, that was a pivotal weekend for him. He's maybe lacking a certain amount of bandwidth at the level he's driving at to see the bigger picture of the race. Mark touched on this quite well when he was talking about one of science's strengths being that he was basically Ferrari's best strategist while he was inside the car. Leclerc isn't or doesn't seem capable of doing that. He's he's more wise after the fact, tends to just follow what the, the team wants him to do. And he found himself, you know, on the wrong end of strategic calls many times. It created tension. So there are still weaknesses there. I think Leclerc is the drive, the pure driving is absolutely there. And if if Ferrari can give him a car that can sustain the right level of performance through the whole season, I'm sure he'll compete for the world championship. But I'm I think he still needs to add a couple more facets to his game to be the absolute top guy. He's not quite at Max's level. He's not quite as ruthless as Max wheel to wheel either, I don't think. Um so that plus not quite having the absolute consistency and science getting much more on terms with him in the second half of the season just lets Leclerc down slightly for me. Scott, you could argue that Leclerc was extremely unlucky this year. He could easily have won another two, three, four Grand Prix that he didn't through no fault of his own. Spain, Baku, Silverstone, Monaco, various ones spring to mind that you could make a case for. How much of his progress do you think was just masked by his team? Um, I think a big big chunk of it. I think um, one of the big takeaways from Leclerc's season is that he's just further extended that already pretty ridiculous pole-to-win ratio. I think he now has 18 poles and only five wins, which is absurd. He's the... Um, I do think he's actually this year become a little bit of... He's the race-winning version of Chris Amon in that he just... Like, he has got that. He has got the victories, but, like, he's not got anything. Like, there's so many different reasons and ways in which he hasn't had more. Um, so he is, I think, I think, un- personally, think he's unlucky to only be third in this list. Uh, he was second in, he was second in my personal um, top 10, which I think I- I'm happy to stand by on the basis of how he finished his year, because I was a bit worried that there was an element in the final quarter of the season of Leclerc just going off the boil a little bit. Whether you know the title was done, Ferrari had lost the constructors' championship. Um, all focus internally, Marinello had been on the 2023 car anyway, and there was a bit of this is a long season. Uh, maybe I just the last few races just is, the season's going on a bit too long for him. And as Ben was pointing out, you know, signs is coming back at him, and all this was going on. But play that that obviously played out against the backdrop of a few circuits that really didn't suit Ferrari either. Um, and then going to Abu Dhabi where he had a sniff of something again, second in the championship, and he did a brilliant job, I think, in that Grand Prix to 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 make it work and put himself in position to beat Perez on strategy. Obviously, Ferrari nailed it as well. So that, to me, dispelled the little bit of doubt that I had about the, the level that Leclerc was operating at in the last few races. So, yeah, I still, I think on balance, he was, uh, the put it this way, the only reason we didn't find out if Leclerc's a title caliber driver this year was not his own fault. 
it was the team that let him down rather than him letting himself down. So I think uh, I think on balance, a very, very good season. And you're all wrong for making me have to accept that he's only third in this list. Well, that's I think sort of sums it up, doesn't it? That he had such a strong season, Leclerc. Very, very impressive level of performances and it's tiny margins that, that make the difference. But we did see early in the season, there, there was a little bit of a period where he was a title contender and he, he did pretty well, didn't he, Mark? He did, yeah. I mean, he's a, f- a fantastic talent and I think his pass around the outside of Hamilton at Cops on the old tyres was the overtaking move of the season. Just incredible. Um, and the places, he, some of the places he got to in his qualifying laps and the, the way he... he Worked out instantly how to maximise the, the the power unit's got very particular traits and he had a way of working it so that he, it involves a lot of brake and throttle overlap. And it makes it, when you look at his telemetry, incredible dance that he does. And it was that that science took so long to um, get his head around to, to imitate that. Um, incredible driver. But um, yeah, maybe globally, not with the full picture um, and I think if he had a really um, uh, strong team with a, if you had, if he was operating in a team like Red Bull or Mercedes, that were um, very very experienced, savvy race winning teams, somebody guiding him and learn, he could learn from. I think you would see the completion of the picture. But at the moment, he's just that little bit, little bit behind on that, and understanding. The, the the full picture of the race and reading a race and what he needs to do and being able to take the initiative and be able to stand his own ground and understand uh, the implications of of the calls the, the in the way that for example signs can so I think yeah that's that's the only um, thing I say would leave him a little bit just just a little bit adrift of Verstappen's level. Let's move on to what I think will be the most controversial of our choices. In second place, Lando Norris. Scott, now you can make a case for Norris being in all sorts of different positions in this in this list, but what impressed you about him? Um, Norris had one of those seasons where a lot of the races look really, really boring and the results look generally unimpressive, but that's purely because of the, the quality of the machinery he was driving. I don't think... Um, with the exception probably of Verstappen, um, I don't think there was anyone else on the grid who routinely got to the maximum of what their car was capable of compared the the Norris did. He was uh he was outstanding, um, super consistent. Um that car had one opportunity this year to snatch a podium and, and Norris got that podium. The rest of the time he was um comfortably, comfortably in the top ten, even when that car was marginally fourth, fifth or sixth quickest on a given weekend. Some of the quali laps were absolutely mega. Um I can't think of any I can't think of any real major error that that he has made. And and there will have been some. He it wouldn't have been a perfect year. No nobody ever posts a perfect season. Um but just all in all a step up on what was already a great year in twenty twenty one. And you know, in isolation this was a season by putting him second on our top 10 shows a season as good as basically anybody's or better than a lot of people's. And I also think it nudged him very, very close to that elite bracket of of drivers. Would I put him absolutely on a Verstappen-Hamilton level overall? Maybe not just yet, but he's absolutely closer than ever. And Mark, obviously there will be those who say that it's just terrible British bias that puts Lando Norris up in 
second place on this this list. But it's obviously very difficult to tell when you've got a driver like that who's often picking up sixth, seventh, eighth places in a in a midfield car. So how how do you judge him against those guys who have got front running cars? It's impossible to do it definitively, but um he he did some extraordinary things with a deeply flawed car and a car that even McLaren says is just not very good. Um, there's, a, there's an imbalance there that there was no getting around and um, he managed to disguise it pretty much every weekend. Uh, he would conjure a way of, of, of getting it to be in, in contention. And the fact that uh, McLaren were even in contention with Alpine for fourth on the, the championship was I mean, it was partly because of Alpine's unreliability, obviously, but it was also quite often the fact that Alonso that um, Norris had put together a better qualifying lap than either Alonso or Ocon, and he he did some extraordinary laps given the the quality of the car, and you'd see the way that this this stood out from any other lap that it <laughs> that car was able to to do, um, you know, in the, there's no sign of it in the practices or any, and it, all of a sudden he would just pick it out when absolute absolutely needed to be done and yeah some some amazing performances actually but as scott said it tended to get lost because the, it was in this no man's land well behind the you know top 3 teams but um quite often well beyond where it should have been as well in within that midfield group and and he's very calm in the way he delivers his race um you know, even even when he was wheel to wheel with Alonso, he was absolutely flawless. So, yeah, um, a wonderful uh, level of performance through the season, and I think absolutely deserving of a, a ranking in the top three. And Ben, there will be those who say, well, he was flattered by a teammate in Daniel Ricciardo who was really struggling and that because he was only fighting for minor positions, just the one podium finish, he had slightly easier competition. Do you think there's anything in that or do you think just the quality shone through? I think the quality shone through. I mean, it probably only stops him from being number one that he wasn't fighting at the absolute front of the grid with the very best all the time. But he was massively over overachieving in that car quite frequently, sometimes out qualifying one or both Mercedes, as Mark said, putting McLaren in a championship fight with Alpine that they had no business being in, really. The car wasn't very good, but he was doing extraordinary things with it. And he absolutely crushed his teammate in qualifying. And we're not just talking about a Nicholas Latifi level driver. Okay, we might be talking about a driver who wasn't at his best, but Daniel Ricciardo is a proven Grand Prix winning driver, someone who, when he was up against Max Verstappen, was within a tenth of his pace, I think, or close to that. Okay, it's a few years ago now, but there was Ricardo's reputation has only become so questioned because of the outstanding level that Norris has shown in the same team. And he just seems to get stronger and stronger with each year as well. So I feel like if you put Norris in a top car, he'd be absolutely in the fight. So Therefore, when we're talking about the top drivers and ranking them, he deserves to be in that mix, even though he's not in one of the top cars. And let's move on to number one now. No great surprises with this one. A unanimous choice, Max Verstappen. Mark, it'll be difficult to say anything that hasn't already been said about Max Verstappen during this exemplary year, but just give us a taste of what made him so good. Well, I mean, he combined the relentless pace of before that we've seen throughout the season. Um, with a, I would say a, a, a more assured 
confidence that he should always be running up there. And he was able to claw back some victories that had looked as though they may have been sort of getting away from him um, just because of the circumstances of the weekend. Uh, he was just... Uh, he, he, he just some of the, the his greatest performance I think this this season was at Spa and that actually was when the car was at its most competitive if you look at the underlying pace of the Red Bull around Spa it was ridiculous it was he, he didn't or he put it on pole by six and a half tenths but that was almost a casual he knew he was taking penalties he wasn't even flat through Puan where he had been earlier on. It was just a sort of sort of quickish lap. The actual pace he saw of, of where that car really was was in uh, his fastest lap when he still had 28 kilos of fuel on board and a set of medium tyres compared to Leclerc doing it on a set of new softs with about two laps of fuel in the tank. It was still faster. So that, I think, had you seen him going absolutely all out, he would have been on pole by about a second and a half around there. And that's just... Okay, some of that was the car, but the way the car was, the way he had the car balanced um, through that middle section, the very, you know, the fast, very, very demanding Puhan section, it was just unbelievable because he didn't have any sort of sec the security blanket of a little bit of understeer on He had it absolutely on the nose the whole time. And where, you know, just a little bit more input would have spat him off the road at high speed. And he just, that's that's where he was at. And um, at one point, they, he was so much faster than Perez. They asked Checo, um, well, um, do you want to put a bit more um, front end in it? Do you want to, you know, because he'd asked what Max's time was. And they said, well, yeah, but he's he, we could do another... We could go another step on the front. We said, I can't carry any more front end. He was absolutely... And that's just like a normal good Grand Prix driver, you know, around those corners. It, 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 to them, he was absolutely brilliant through there. And it was like watching peak era Michael Schumacher through there. It was, it was, that, that's the level he was at. Um, so, yeah, I think he's got more used to and relaxed... Um, in operating at a very it's that rarefied air of super performance and he can almost just sort of walk into it now and then just produce it on demand and i think generally the more difficult the task the the greater max's advantage is and i you know absolutely yeah just flying absolutely this is you know the absolute peak of his um career i think and ben there is an argument that people make that Verstappen had it too easy this year. That happens whenever a driver has the strongest car and, and dominates. Do you think there's anything in that? No, because they didn't dominate the entire season. You know, the Ferrari was the fastest car on balance through the first part of the season. The Red Bull was probably overall better in the races from the start. Um, but Max also was struggling a little bit to get the most from that car when it was a bit heavier and a bit lazier. Red Bull weren't quite as on top of this car for the new rules given how previous season's title fight went right to the end and obviously Ferrari sacrificed two years to get ready for this one so they came out of the gate quite fast but he found a way to make it work and he was still exceptionally good even when he was struggling it's only once they started to f find the correct rhythm together team driver and car that he then just went to a different plane that no one else could match least of all his teammate and I'm glad that Mark mentioned Schumacher in his answer because 
that's what this season looked like to me. It was Schumacher-esque in the way that he was just unrelenting in the car, still demanding out of it, trying to win every weekend. But he had, at the same time, this just slight step back of not trying to lose it or be on top in every single session. He was happy to to see the slightly bigger picture of each race weekend and sacrifice a bit here in order that the Sunday result was the best one. And they just look like, they look like a Schumacher Ferrari era team now. Best designer, really well-run unit, top driver, absolutely happy where he is, getting the absolute most out of the car, subservient teammate, but also one that, you know, just isn't capable of getting to that level in the same car. And, to follow that comparison, I guess Leclerc is kind of your Hakkinen to Verstappen's Schumacher, but I just don't think Ferrari and Leclerc are as close to, to Max. So therefore his numbers are just that much more impressive because they need to to raise their level to get in the fight with him. Well, Scott, we'll let you have the final say on Max Verstappen in the, in the top 10. I know there's not a great deal more to say other than what's been said already because he was so stunningly good, but I'm sure you're equal to the challenge. <laughs> uh, well I could repeat something I've said I think on a couple of other podcasts um, we've done before which is that I think he's been tested in different ways this year and I think he's passed those tests um, once or twice we did see the sort of bad side of Verstappen he was very impatient and a bit emotional in the first few races especially when things weren't going so well he holds the team and himself to very very high standards and they fell short of that at times so Matt, uh, Max let them have that with absolutely uh, both barrels um, and obviously towards the end of the year as well, things like the the Hamilton clash in, in Brazil that was just unnecessary. Um, so again, a bit like I said, I think about Norris, like not a perfect season because no, no, no driver ever does one, but um, really, really impressed by him. I think he did take another small step as a driver this year, having already been on a very high level in 2021. And I think the thing that people who criticise Max need to remember is while he did end the season with the fastest car in Formula One, as I think Ben pointed out, he didn't have that the whole year. And actually, by the time he'd won the championship, and by that I mean not officially, but had the championship wrapped up, he didn't have the fastest car. He had that championship won by the summer break, by which point the tide was turning towards Red Bull. But on balance, the Ferrari had been the fastest car over the first 13 races. So Max had actually won the championship with a slower car. He then just con- continued to just add an insane amount of gloss to that championship victory once the car came more to his liking and he exploited it to absolutely devastating effect. So he, he deserves not only this championship, but also the the win record for a season because he won a lot of races that a lesser driver would not have won in the first half of the, of the Grand Prix season. I think that's the thing. People often underestimate how difficult it is to achieve this relentless dominance. And yes, the Red Bull over the course of the season was the best package, but Verstappen, like all great drivers, just served to make it better. Well, thanks very much, Ben Anderson, Scott Mitchell, Malm and Mark Hughes for your insight. Head to the race.com and don't forget the hyphen as we're not going to be slowing up during the off-season, so loads to read there. Check out our sister podcasts, including Bring Back V10s and the Race F1 Tech Show, and also have a look at our YouTube channel. And just like our website, the podcast won't be taking it easy over the winter, so stay with us for everything you need to know from the world of Formula One. The Athletic.